You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, this is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni, and as last time we were recording, once again, Sam joins us on this side of the pond. And Sam, I think you've probably tasted enough of the atmosphere, the zeitgeist here to realize that one of the main issues along with the incredible inflation that is wrecking this country and maybe the whole world, is the abortion issue. And it was already, I guess, rumblings of it uh, were apparent in the number of states' laws that were held up to be constitutional, laws that allowed uh, private citizens to sue abortion clinics and be able to hold abortion clinics responsible in a civil lawsuit. And then, of course, the... You know, what was considered this incredible uh, sea change, this move of overturning Roe v. Wade by the majority of the Supreme Court. There's been a lot of ink spilled, although that, that metaphor is definitely already an ancient one, it's, but there's been a lot of word processing, reams of paper uh, devoted to this, a lot of stuff in the cloud. And I don't want to talk to you from a legal perspective, from an American legal perspective or from the Torah perspective. We have done that on this platform. I want to talk to you from a psychological perspective, and I want to talk about two things, the micro, in a sense, and the macro. The micro, Sam, I'd like you to get a little bit into the mindset of a woman who is faced with this choice, whether the pregnancy is just something that's not wanted because of social considerations, or whether it's something that was the byproduct of something even more traumatic. And talk a little bit about the mindset of, of a pregnant woman uh, who is faced with this extremely important ethical decision whether to terminate a pregnancy. I know that you have counseled people on all walks of life, the whole spectrum from the cradle to the grave in a way. Um, but talk a little bit about the mindset of a pregnant woman as this confronts her. And then I, if you can, Let's add to that the macro, which is why is it that this issue uh, seems to be the crucial one in dividing the left from the right? Why is there so much passion involved in it? Why is there so much, as we've seen, outbreaks of violence on either side uh, to the point that people were going to uh, want to lynch the Supreme Court justices on the basis of this? And even if it isn't necessarily violence, but the type of very angry editorializing that you're seeing from both sides, why is it that this issue about the termination of fetal life somehow is the so a distinctive one? And how come it brings out the passions and also the excesses to the point that it's it's hard to, to hear them. It's hard to hear each side because they're screaming so stridently to each other. All right, you touched on a couple of things, obviously. Let me just say, you mentioned, if I've gotten used to the um, spirit here in the United States, then we basically have the same thing going on in Israel. The issues are there just the same. You might want to say that the, the, U, the USA is the uh, tail that wags the entire uh, dog, which is the liberal um, dog, Weltanschauung, that's all over the place. But I don't see it as 
American versus Israeli at all, right versus left, the way they divide and fall into the issue nicely. Sam, you're not going to tell me that in Israel there's, forget about the editorializing, the people out in the streets arguing for abortion rights. It's such a major factor in Israel. It's not a major factor because people don't talk about it as but I can tell you that um, even in a place like Mainai HaYeshua, which is a hospital, a religious hospital with Neighborak, if I need to get an abortion done for a patient, I can get it done very quickly. Just write the right papers and know who to send it to, and it's, it's done. It's a done deal. Mm-hmm. So it's there. It's just not as much noise there, primarily because it's not so much of a um, legal question for the religious community, because they see it more as a halachic question. They don't really care what the law is. Either way, they would do things either way, regardless of what the law is. So it's not heated, because they really are not so concerned, they're not so concerned about the morality of the population, so long as their um, backyard is not being touched. Whereas in the United States, there is a a feeling, uh, especially in terms of evangelicals, they are responsible for morality of the nation as a whole. Mm-hmm. Excited. The Chairedim have never um, gotten involved or maybe have long given up on any kind of moral issues for the uh, country, so their turf is intact. So as long as we don't force abortions in Maina Yeshua, but just enable it under the, um, the radar for people who are considered anyway, Meishrim that don't really belong in the community or they don't want in the community, they don't raise much of a fuss. I think I agree with you uh, that there isn't the sense that if this is going on, what does this say about the Israeli character? Because they've already, as you said, acclimated to this idea that Tzioinim, the government, is already guilty on so many fronts. This is just another one. Maybe it's major, maybe it's minor, but it's part of the collected salvos that they they are firing at. And it's all, it's taken for granted, as opposed to where is our, what's the spirit of our country. Right. That's not, that's not an issue. And how can we make sure it's a moral country? I think there's another element here, which I've only discovered when I was doing some research into this subject over the last couple of months, is that generally when a, a, a woman in Israel files for an abortion, there is sort of like a vada of a meeting of a number of, there's an ethicist and maybe a religious figure and a doctor. So that I think is like standard procedure that there's a certain, a much more measured approach as opposed to... Yeah, but the, what they want are documents, and I can tell you these documents, you can buy in the five and dime. <laughs> I see. I thought that they actually get the input of if the religious uh, guide and advisor to... or the. Yeah, but the religious guides always refer to the, defer to the doctor. You know, that, mm. it's important. If I say, look, it's important for the person's mental health, blah, blah, they, they're okay. And I find that very nice that I don't have to fight various kinds of um, people from other expertise and uh, and disciplines. So uh, we weren't, I I wasn't expecting to get into this, Sam, but it sounds like you've sometimes been on this Vada. No, no, not in the Vada. Outside prescriber. I'm not part of any Vadas because I can't be part of a Vada that talks about an ideology which doesn't exist to begin with, like to make a judgment whether it meets criteria and the criteria don't exist. Now, what am I talking about? So I, okay. I've, but, avoided, uh, I've avoided forensics like the plague in the United States as well. I can't deal with what, what's right and what's wrong when that's not defined and whether somebody deserves punishment or doesn't 
by use of some kind of concept of whatever deserving means. So I can't relate to that, but I can tell you that somebody will fall apart or will be in significant danger of killing yourself or killing a, or killing a child or um, doing other harm that I'm very comfortable saying. So, so in, in Israel, in your sojourn there, have you been referenced at those pre-procedural meetings before they actually perform the abortion? Has the opinion of Sam Juni ever been raised? So gladly, I don't know, because I restrict myself to making up a document, taking money and saying, get out of my hair. <laughs> so, I don't like these procedures. Again, because, I mean, I don't like testifying or giving expert opinions for somebody else to judge it who doesn't even understand what I'm saying. Well, you know, but Sam, you know, that, that's a maca everywhere. Every time you have... Oh, sure, sure, sure. I avoid the, I avoid the American forensic system like the plague. I've got <laughs> the case if it says, and you will testify. And I have some very close colleagues and relatives who do that for a living. I just, I can't. I'm happy they get paid, but the same thing even occurs when they ask an opinion of, of a rabbi on a certain halakha question uh, that's going on. And then they translated it in, into their own system in a kind of you know, comical way. So you're really saying that, and I'm saying, I'm not saying that, and you have no idea what I'm saying, so leave me alone. Right, and, and, and that's why, as Simon Garfunkel said it, I think, in one of the lyrics of their songs, a man hears what he wants to hear and mm-hmm. disregards the rest. Mm-hmm. In the song the boxer i think that, that that happens but furthermore they think they know what you're saying it's not like i'm not interested this is i know what you mean but you're wrong you know do you mean to tell me that intelligence doesn't change from when a kid is three to when he's 98 i say yeah I say, come on now <laughs> okay so but but all right so i i take your your point that in and but i think it really just strengthens my initial observation about how things are here in the U.S. But, but again, I wanted, before we played armchair sociologists, I wanted you to talk a little bit about, put yourself in the mind of someone who is saddled with this pregnancy. And, and again, I'm going to play a little bit of Freud on you a little bit. We know that you know, Freud talked about the idea of hysteria. He talked about the idea of the rationale, if there is one, behind their decision-making and, and what it's built on and where does it come from. A, a woman who's, who's pregnant, when you've been treating them, do you feel that they are, in a way, the best arbiters to decide you know, at, at this point? I mean, just, just because the, the hormonal changes that are going on within her, and, and, and we know from every husband who complains about you know, his wife's, whether it's hunger pangs or demands or other things that are going on, does it seem like this is the right mindset to decide, I don't want this baby? Okay, you, you've just painted a dartboard on your face here. And I'm, I'm ready, throw I'm it. I'm sure you'll get those, resp- no, not for me. I'm sure you'll get those responses from the audience. Okay, let, let me just frame this a, a little bit differently in a way that we can highlight this. Okay, so let's talk about a couple. Okay, a man and a woman who are significant others to each other, and there's a pregnancy there, there which is problematic. And problematic, let me not even define the parameters, problematic for whatever reason it is. And then there are considerations here, what do we or don't we do about it? There is no question that it's much more potent for the woman than it is for the man, because she is carrying the child, 
she is going through all kinds of bodily changes. Her body is being depleted and more invested. So there's no question that it's a harder issue for the women than for the man. That's step A. Now, um, the harder something is for you, the less competent you are to make a judgment which is rational or which is consistent or which considers all the parameters, right? When things are hot for you, the, the hotter things tend to come to the foreground and the, and the cooler things tend to go to the background. So I would say that the person who is least qualified to make an overall judgment about a situation is the person who is involved in it. In other words, an, an outside person who is competent and can get an understanding of all the variables makes much more of a um, rational judge or someone who can best predict what's going to happen with the situation than you are. That's the whole idea about having experts consultants everywhere rather than just allowing people to say, I'll be my own lawyer or I'll be my own doctor or my own uh, uh, architect or whatever it is. That's the logic. So the two things that are going on here is that there is an issue about an external system like legality or halacha, et cetera. And then there's another issue about what's good for me What's right for me, which is really an oxymoron, what's right for me really means what makes me tick. It's not right. There is no specific moral standards that I know about in any system which are designed to move along with the person. So the mixture of the debate over here, like what you find is very neatly that many more women um, believe that a child is not ethically, morally, religiously, a bona fide person, then do men believe that, belies the notion that this is a rational debate, because a rational debate would be 50-50 in terms of any kind of demographics. If it's not, that means you have a certain uh, iron in the fire here, which is fine. So I don't mind women saying, look, this is so important an issue for me emotionally, or in terms of what it does to my mental health or to my sanity, that I don't care about other values. That's cool. And you can't debate that because the guy will say, I care because it doesn't pertain to me as much, or I'm willing to suffer, or I'm Protestant, or I'm evangelical, and I feel that I have to put aside my feelings, and the other person doesn't. But what's going on here, at least politically with this divide, is that it's become incorporated into other kinds of issues which wag the entire dog over here, which is unfortunate. That's why it makes it so hard to to pull apart the issues. There is no problem having a rational debate for anybody in terms of, is this a child or not? And then you can look at halachic standards, look look, look at the writings of Schopenhauer or Aristotle or Archimedes or the second Pharaoh. It doesn't make a difference and say, okay, these are the, the constitution. How do you read the constitution? And again, you read the constitution based on your um, intellectual approach, not in terms of where you want this to go and then read the constitution backwards. That's an issue which is separate. And then you have another issue in terms of it's a hot button that bothers me. There are implications. And then there's what we call the social political implications that you know we women have been pushed around long enough. And here is another case where you men are pushing us around, which is the same way, basically, of intersectionality. Everything becomes one part. It's part of the gay issue. It's part of the anti-race issue. It's part of the Palestinian issue. You can run with this whatever you want to. So I think if you sort the pieces out, it's not so complicated here. The Republicans have a great method here 
of coming up with a divide, which sort of approximates the notion of conservatism versus liberalism. And they have a way to bash the liberals. The liberals have a great way to bash the conservatives who say, who are you to tell me about my body? And so I don't see it as complicated. I just see it as a mess where people are basically presenting themselves as debating an issue within a certain context, and it has nothing to do with that. You know, again, I, I appreciate the expansion, and I was looking for the contraction, <laughs> no pun intended here, of the point. Let, let, me, let me ask you this. Have you, in your vast experience, ever counseled or in a professional manner, someone who had undergone an abortion during pregnancy and then was guilt-ridden afterwards and said, you know, I wouldn't have made that decision, but while I was pregnant because of the social pressures, because of what I was feeling internally, I felt I had to do it. And then later felt that, hmm, had I been perhaps a little bit outside of myself, had I been able to whisper in my ear uh, in a different way, I wouldn't have had the abortion. Has that ever happened? So let me say, I've never met a person who's had an abortion who doesn't feel guilty about it. I've never met an, a person who um, had an abortion and ended up with a child who was suffering who did not feel guilty about that. In other words, did not feel guilty that maybe they should have aborted. Yeah, not maybe. In retrospect, the grass becomes much ungreener as you move away from it. So it's obvious. In other words, guilt is something that gnaws at you. Guilt is not something that's monolithic. In other words, I can feel good about something and still feel guilty about it. Like the typical father who says, oh, this hurts me much more than it hurts you, and then whacks the hell out of the kid. So the point is, you do something and are ambivalent about it, and you don't expect those ambivalencies to die. They will die in terms of saying, this is the decision I'm making, and then you decide it that way, but you'll always feel bad about it. So yes, I have never seen someone who has made a decision which has significant emotional pros or cons who doesn't feel guilty. Sure. So you would actually you would actually equate that percentage again, the percentage of persons who aborted and felt guilty is pretty much equal to the percentage of Yeah, the percentage is 100% who did not abort, let's say, a child with... Avramo, 100%. That's why I equate them. 100 equals to Everybody feels guilty about doing something which was one-sided, so sure. That's not to say you won't repeat it, and that's not to say that you're not willing to own the guilt, but you feel guilty about it. Um, does it get to the point that you need to have psychiatric treatment? Often, often, and often, the way I discover it, is not when the referral is about that guilt. The referral is about some kind of psychosomatic illness that comes up. The referral is about a, a dissolution of a marriage. The referral is about coming up with a, a lifestyle which is reckless and makes no sense. And then just beneath the surface, what's driving this is the guilt of having done A or B. So sure, sure. This is a very emotional issue. This is an issue where you're basically um, trying to decide like, look, I've never met people who don't feel guilty about doing a bris for their kid. Is that so? Yeah, but I'm not saying that that ends up on my couch. But it's there. You probe just a little. Probe just a little. Think of someone, let's say, who, who's into the religious um, Jewish bit because of social reasons, right? 
and not quite for religious reasons, and they go along with it. Okay, so here I am because I want to be accepted and do what my pals want. I do this stuff to my kid that has all kinds of Freudian implications and all kinds of medical stuff. And of course, my cousin who has become like a bisexual liberal uh, since days tells me, you're a maniac. You know, what are you doing? You're an African Zulu. Fine. So does that stop you? Not usually, but you feel bad about it. You don't feel bad when your kid is screaming over there and this guy with the beard is doing who knows what to him? Come on. Uh, somehow I just have these images that I think of the Seinfeld episode where Kramer goes to a bris and somehow kidnaps the child and won't let the child. I think so. I, I seem to remember in my head. I, I don't I remember was, that one, but it's like Kramer. Kramer would do it, sure. <laughs> we grab the baby before the boy had a chance. We all have a Kramer in us. Come on. But one of the things I think that you hinted to was that it's it's with like when the with the woman who is faced with this choice that what might be welling up is not just the fear of a child that perhaps has developmental dis- disabilities and their inability to deal with that even if it, the child everything seems to be healthy there's a certain sense that a woman has and I think that you touched on it although you didn't explicate it is that she feels she's just been objectified. She feels she's being used. She feels she's this oven that someone has planted something in her. There's a lot of resentment towards what's occurring within her, how the, the, the biological, sociological role of being a secondary person. And let me just add, if you're a Jungian, this is basically just the end of a long list which dates back to whatever. This is what's being done. I'm a second-class citizen. I'm being used for other people, even my child. Being used for my child, that might sound very great, you can resent that too. So even without, would you say it's natural for a woman to feel those thoughts of resentment and being used? I would just not thoughts. I would say feelings. These are not thoughts. These are feelings, and it's natural And I would say, furthermore, that if you don't come to own them, they will end up showing up, you know, different professionals' couches. You have to own them, look at them and say, yeah, I know it's there, but it's not a big deal. If you don't own them at all and say, no, I am perfectly happy doing this and being the uh, person who services the community and Claudius Royal and God and whatever, you keep saying that and you're going to have something pop (laughs) <laughs> you're saying that if you keep on repeating the moralistic mantras or religious ideology and choking or, uh, whatever it is or the sociological ideologies or the marital ideologies and you choke off the others you can't just choke things up they show up they don't necessarily show up as dramatic uh, you know psychopathology but they'll show up i can smell it any professional can smell the repercussions well you know again you know, throwing another cultural reference about, I guess, 20 years earlier than Seinfeld, Rosemary's Baby, where, you know, you had a, a horror picture that really, I think, reached deep into the psyche of, of the world, where, you know, Mia Farrow plays this young woman who feels that she's been impregnated by Satan. <laughs> Actually, she was. And the, the hatred that she feels for what's happening, the hatred towards being used, and I think that, as you say, that's something which sears through the subconscious of many, many women, is the fact that they are being used and 
they create a resentment to the fetus, resenting what's really happening, resenting... Not just the fetus, not just the fetus, sure. Right, they, they resent what's happening to their body, they resent the, the sickness. They resent the society, they resent the religion, they resent their parents, the landlord, everybody. As if there's a demon seed within them. And that's why... Yeah, again, just calling this Sam, don't you shake your head like I do and say, this is not just about a woman's right to choose. This is something much bigger than you know a, a choice. This is something that is you know, really tied up with so many other factors. And I think the, the simplistic way of saying that you're taking away a woman's right to choose really glosses over uh, the complexity. No, it, it tries to reduce many issues into one issue. But yes, it is a question of a woman's right to choose as juxtaposed with many other issues that are going on here. In other words, if I would say a woman has no right to choose what kind of ice cream she wants, okay? That kind of simplifies it. But to say a woman has no right to choose to park wherever she wants to, even somebody else is waiting for the spot, that makes things more complicated. It's still a woman's right to choose if I say that a man does have a right to do that and a woman doesn't. But the issue is not just the parking. The issue is other things that are going on. It's people's rights. It's other people's rights. So this, I think, is a good place to jump into why there are people, and, and you sort of hinted them before, who never were pregnant, never could even get pregnant. And yet, to them, they will fight for this issue and, and die for it. And kill for it. Yes, right. Die and kill for it. Why is it that this has become such a, a motivating force on both sides? And, and you're hearing about abortion clinics being bombed, and you're hearing about persons who are pro-life being attacked and, 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 and beaten up and bombed. What is this? What, and I don't know if this occurs throughout the world, the Western society, but why do you believe so many people and maybe you've already given us the background, but why don't you explicate it a little bit more? Look, the issues of life and death are very germane to the very basics of our, uh, shall we say, neurotic fears or demons. We're, I mean, one of the biggest fears that people have is a fear of death. It's just there. And when you start dealing with any concern life and death, I've seen um, the same kind of excitement happen around capital punishment. And I was, do you or do you not have the right to, to kill someone or not kill someone under certain circumstances? So I think it's fairly straightforward. The question is always um, when you go totally out of your context to fight a certain point. And in the business, we call it um, like an extreme reaction where it's quote unquote inappropriate. Like, what are you getting so excited? My example always used to be actually from you know experience, is this 94-year-old woman who takes a train from Brooklyn to Queens to picket in the winter in front of a um, X-rated theater. Uh, okay, so like, I, I don't know about this. You know, what are you doing? And then in the village where I you know, basically lived for many years, uh, there were kids who, I mean, let's say um, religious, quote-unquote, teenagers who would go out to the West Side Highway with crowbars to bash in the skulls of some gay people. Okay, like, you know, what do you do? You have nothing better to do. Go see a movie, you know, go to a party. When you find this kind of response, it basically says that you are fighting some kind of internal scourge. 
something that's in there that's bugging you and you don't have the ability, the guts, or the emotional um, stamina to tackle it, so you tackle an outside version of that issue. So the, the yahoos, the ones that actually plant the dynamite, really have got other... Yes, they have a lot of other stuff cooking because the, the rational thing to do really is to go to McDonald's and have a cheeseburger, you know, rather than go through this mess that where you, you're basically hurting people, you're, getting, you're going to get in trouble with the law, you're probably getting in trouble with your own um, social context after you're discovered to be a Meshuggah like that. Yeah, yeah, other things are bothering you. It's not just that. I'm sure somebody like Hinkle, like Sirhan Sirhan, to say he was just angry about Kennedy. I don't know. Okay. I mean, this really touches on another one of our podcasts when we tried to get into the mind of people, of the deranged uh, murderers and things like that. Yeah, I can't call these people deranged. These people are jihadists. You know, they, 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 they have a principle that's right out of the Bible or straight out of Martin Luther or the... Uh, the protocols of the Latter-day Saints, and they say we're acting on it. It's the right thing to do. We're going to make sure there's no hunger in the world, that people recycle, and that people uh, don't park illegally, and they don't kill, and they, a lot of things. We have to take care of it. And what about, you know, the, as I mentioned earlier, the editorializing that is so, so, so strident, as if this event somehow marks returning the United States to, uh, or, or are pushing the United States into some sort of Margaret Atwood dystopian future, of, you know, because she has in The Handmaid's Tale of, you know, oppression. And I think it is actually turning the United States because the United States has basically become a branch of NYU or of Cornell, and it's been pursuing a, an agenda. Uh, if you want to be crazy, you can call it a woke agenda. I wouldn't go that far. I'm going the other way. I'm saying that the, the, the woke people are bemoaning what the Supreme Court is doing. Right, right, right. It... No, I'm saying it has become that. It's become an arm of, of the liberal ideology. And they already gained. They already made progress with Roe versus Wade and some other things. And then you have some reactionary people who are old and are different than us. And they're turning the clock back. They're saying, no, there are certain values here of ours that you've trampled on, and we're going to make sure that those are, values are still there. So essentially, you've given the kid, you've allowed the kid to stay out till midnight, you've allowed the kid to go practice all kinds of unsafe um, activities, and all of a sudden you're saying, hey, forget it, you can't do it, it's dangerous. Oh, I've been doing this for 10 years now, or for eight years now, and it's already accepted, and everybody knows, and of course, is legal and that's legal and suddenly you're turning it back. So I can understand the resentment, you know. It's essentially feeling from somebody's perspective, I have been given a way to behave in a way that's very comfortable and now you're making me uncomfortable again. But, but what's, what's so strange, Sam, is that these writers and editorialists, they are all ensconced in states that have very liberal abortion policies and you know, they're bemoaning and, and, and crying what's happening in Texas or Mississippi or Louisiana or other places where they don't even live. And it, they're tearing their hair out, not realizing nothing is really going to change in their lives. And you have articles in the New York Times, the New Yorker, sending like Sherlock Holmes and the Baker Street Irregulars to try to find out every single story about a girl who now can't get an abortion and, and splashing that is like the major story of how terrible this is. It's really a way of, I really think, fanning a boogeyman that doesn't exist. I don't think the boogeyman doesn't exist. I mean, imagine that if you are part of the privileged sub-community 
in the country that's going totalitarian, right? And that your particular backyard and dog and swimming pool is not being threatened. I wouldn't be so quick to dismiss the concerns of people who are like ideological, um, shall we say, gatekeepers for the country saying, I don't like where this country is going. Like people who complain about the economy, don't like where it's going when they're filthy rich and living in Ranana and nothing's going to happen to them. But for you to be like cynical and say, well, if you are not touched by something and you see your country going down a way which is taking away, quote, rights or values, that you should not be moaned. I don't find that problematic. I do find it psychologically pathonomic or indicating a pathology that if you go out of your comfort zone and put yourself in danger and go fight for stuff that's not relevant to you, like, let's say, the ideologue bombers of 9-11 from Saudi Arabia who came from a privileged community whose life was not threatened at all by Israel or anybody. So there I say, okay, why are you doing this? Why aren't you just home enjoying your TV and your virgins or whatever you do? But Sam, as you have talked about, and again, I didn't want this to turn this into a soapbox, but as you've talked about that the woke ideology is much more strict in terms of the thought police canceling any sort of statement, branding everything as hate speech, really, and now you're telling me that the reason why they're so upset, the reason why they think these Supreme Court rulings herald some sort of dark age for the United States is because they're spoiled kids who've gotten everything they've wanted. And now, when one thing isn't the way they would like it to be, although it doesn't really affect them, they're holding their breath and turning blue about it. Yeah, but but what I'm also saying is that what they're doing is they're seeing it as a personal issue rather than, shall we say, a bona fide question. You know, is this correct or not correct? And they're saying, oh, wait a moment, you're interfering with people's rights and these are established rights. They're, They're thinking with their guts not with their brains. If they think with their brains, say, okay, these people think that, I don't believe that. So we have different beliefs. Can we resolve it? Maybe yes, maybe no. But resolving it by just, shall we say, painting it all as just misogyny or racism is not a true picture of what's going on. So no, they're thinking with their guts, which the way most people think, most people don't think. Well, but, but Sam, we are both old enough to remember that there was a certain respect that was paid. There was always an idea that maybe this guy shouldn't be the arbiter, but there was a certain respect that was paid to members of the Supreme Court. There was a sense that they were legal scholars. Uh, There was an idea that sometimes, and I know this as a die-in, most of the time, neither party is is, is very happy with what we poskin, but they walk away and saying, I'm a cabo because I, that's this is not my area, and, and this is what these people know. Here you have, again, the people who aren't steeped in how to apply legal principles to modern situations, who are just, as you say, reacting with their gut and, and really defaming people totally. Also, I would say tearing down an icon which was supposed to be immune. Look, politically, I would say this came to a head when you saw clear considerations by the president, several presidents already, and the Congress about the political beliefs or inclinations of nominees for the Supreme Court. That used to be like a taboo. You don't do that. That's right. Somebody's a respected scholar in law or in constitutional law. You can consider moral issues, but you don't consider, will they uh, go against X? Will they go against Y? And I would say, in a smaller sense, the idea of just 
overloading the Supreme Court. That's there have been certain political, like they're saying it openly, put in some more judges to vote them out, etc. Oi, you know, that's almost as bad as revoking tenure from the academic system, saying, okay, from now on, you cannot just say or think what you think is right, but you have to go along with the line. Otherwise, we'll pull your paycheck. Yeah, well, well, the idiocy, it's almost incomprehensible that someone of Biden's mental acuity should stand up and say, I don't think this was reasoned correctly. And I think that they made... Right. Who are you? You're just, he's a political. You're, he's a political right. hack for his whole life. Can you even make your way through? You might have some law degree, you know, finished last in your class. Can you make it through this uh, Alito's uh, writings here? Do you really have a sense of what he's trying to say? And therefore, it's, it's like, who cares? The point is they don't care about the legal integrity. I understand. But the words that come out of their mouth, Sam, are so ridiculous. This was not reasoned correctly. What? Would you have gone to the NASA scientists and said, hmm, I don't think you reasoned correctly about uh, the Voyager landing gear, about how it was supposed to get into into Martian atmosphere? (laughs) Get into historical agriculture, and there's not so much within the century where the whole Russian agricultural system was anti-Darwinian. It was Lamarckian because that fit more the Bolshevik ideology. It seemed much more egalitarian, which is like, okay, no, but people do that. Sure, they decide on um, so-called intellectual or moral merits based on the political or personal needs. And therefore, what it does is, I think, it taints and really brings down all scholarship. Because if some layman, political layman can hold forth, or even the, the editorialists, who have been writing on it, who don't have legal degrees, who are writing about this, then really it's sort of similar to what I was saying before. It's like the Balabatim deciding in the shul what the minute should be. And And how much of a lamb the rabbi is. That's right. As the Gemara always says, it's an oilam hafuch. And you better get used to it. But look, you know, this was, I think, you know, we went a little bit far afield here, Sam. And I wanted to, you know, bring us back here today. And let's go back to where we started. Let's go back to where there's no question that hormones influence decisions and feelings and that the hormonal changes that are undergoing during pregnancy definitely affect the state of mind and, shall we say, the relig- the, the logical decision-making that a woman has, which makes, of course, the other partner who has less of a hormonal disbalance going on less given to be influenced by that. But given that, the issues that are there are still there. And there's no way you can write them off the hormones. You can perhaps write off the hormones, the fact that the person is acting quicker or slower than she would ordinarily. But it's not like it creates intellectual issues. It accentuates certain kinds of emotional issues, but it doesn't create anything. And as you've said, you know, I talk about women being counseled post-pregnancy to being counseled during pregnancy, would you also say that as a woman ages and as, and again, this gets into, like you said, I've got a target on my face here, but as a woman is now post-menopausal, would you say that that woman presents herself with a completely different set of psychological mindset than a woman while she was 
in her fertile years. As we undergo hormonal changes, that's true for men also, although to a lesser degree, our ability to deal with certain kinds of emotional presses, emotional dictates, becomes affected. Sure, there's no question about it. But I would say without any hormones at all, you wouldn't be able to make any kind of effective move. So you need those. That's your gasoline. Like the Gemara and Sanhedrin says, that when they tried to eliminate the Yetzirah for sexual activity, nothing happened. People watched a lot of TV. <laughs> they, couldn't, yeah, they couldn't even get eggs from chickens. But would you say that your older patients, the ones, men and women, who aren't, who aren't so affected by that biological Darwinian drive that somehow that complex cocktail of feelings and emotions and, and, and drives, I know they present other issues. They can focus on issues and not be as jerked around by the um, emotional undercurrents. Yes, but the emotions are still there. They're, it just doesn't have that kind of oomph to it. So when they come to you as patients, do you find that they are able to accept? And I know you, I know you send them off to others, but from what you're hearing, do you find that once you're past that hormonal stage, that you're able to at least instigate and begin the type of psychological healing? Well, I would say once you pass the, the menopause age, then you're starting to deal with other biological determined emotions, such as the fact that you're on your way to death. And that becomes much harder. That is not an issue that's alive for a typical 25-year-old. And that's not what they're dealing with. They're dealing with totally different issues. I mean, there's basically Eric Erickson has a beautiful chart of the hot button issues, which our body and hormonal balance causes. And it's constant. It's just the issues become, so some issues become much hotter or much colder. Like the issue of whose life is it and do you have a right to take life becomes much more potent for older people than for younger ones. If you could redraw, you know, the godly map of how human beings develop, if there could be like a cutoff of fertility at 30, then you would have from 30 till 50, 20 years where you're not in the throes of your hormones and you're sort of at the peak of life. Uh, those issues aren't really besetting you. And then you at least have 20 years of, of balanced perspective until you know you, you sort of become over that hill, so to speak, and you're, you're looking into the great... Into a bit. That sounds great, but see, I just want to say balanced perspective is in a sense a logical misnomer because you're balancing factors that have no way of being balanced. And I, I, I keep being reminded there was a, um, a scale once that came out and I remember I criticized it and I got a lot of egg in my face for it. But they ask you, you know, would you rather listen to opera or take a hot bath? You know, what are you asking me here? You know, it's, I'm not weighing one again. These are different issues. They're different factors that appear to different ways of feeling good about myself or about my environment. Weighing them, being balanced, doesn't mean anything. If you want to balance the costs, like would you spend more money if you only had enough money for one or the other? Fine, but that's an artificial way of balancing. Things are not balanceable. It's like, yeah or no, they're both there. So what is more important, the fact that you are in charge of your own body or the fact that you don't end up infringing on somebody else's rights? Give me a break. It's not a real question. Let's end here with just another thing that I'm thinking about. I don't know if it's true, but 
I have a, a sense that some of the passion that is engendered by women who choose to abort, some of the passion against them is from people who are unable to have children. And there's like, they're playing out a pain, as you said before, you hear often, yes, we know it's going to be a nine months or perhaps whatever it is, the sign of the pregnancy that's going to take its toll from you. But if that child is born, especially you know, if, if the child doesn't have uh, developmental disabilities, that's a healthy child that could give so much happiness to couples who are childless or to women who can't conceive and have children. Can you talk a little bit about that? The anger that somehow stirs within the, the person who is beset by infertility. I'm just going to keep wearing my Freud hat and tell you that any emotions that are engendered about issues that are not relevant to you are displaced emotions. In other words, you really naturally don't care about anybody or anything that's not you in a emotional kind of way. You can care about it intellectually. You can have a judgment in terms of what repercussions this will have on the world, on freedom, and on Abraham Lincoln. But you don't really get excited about stuff. If you say there's a fellow in Africa who just beat his child or beat his wife or stole uh, money from someone, you don't get emotional about it. If you get emotional, it has to spell a displaced emotion from you. I imagine that people who cannot have children and want to have children, have all kinds of emotional repercussions and baggage, and yes, guilt, et cetera, et cetera, because I'm sure all these people have done something wrong in their life, and it takes nothing for our moral compass to attribute whatever suffering they have now to that, and they feel bad about it, and that's pent-up anger, pent-up guilt. It's nice to be able to dump that elsewhere for a change and give yourself some breathing room. So I don't see anybody getting excited emotionally about anybody else if it's not your business, unless it's a transportation of your own issues. And if you want to push that to the extreme, someone who has no guilt in that area and has no emotional acts to grind will not get emotionally excited about something else. Yes, right. Again, without trying to minimize the hurt and the pain of any of the types of persons we've been discussing today, it's important to sort of realize that, you know, we talk about things from a legalistic and, and we use, as we say, objective moral statements as if they can be transferred uh, as truisms. When actually, as we know, the world of your, your pain, of your history and other things is really coloring and dictating almost everything that you are saying and all the stances that you're taking. And in some ways, even in the in the world of the Talmud as well, again, to deny that certain Amaroyim bring to the table, you know, where they were coming from would be wrong. But part of what scholarship is about is being able to figure out where that emotion and energy stops to give people the benefit of the doubt. You give them the dignity saying, yes, I take what you said. That at least some of that, yes, was a reasoned opinion that I'm going to deal with. Just like, I guess, any podcast conversation. <laughs> ah, don't push it. Don't push it. <laughs> That's what I would say. And again, and I know that especially when you talk with Dr. Judy, you realize that any conversation you have, you're exposing yourself to the morass of feelings and issues. 
it's part of your own personal history. So we'll catch you again, hopefully soon, whether it's on the other side of the pond, your Schleimer Akledish are here at the States. Thanks a lot, Sam. Altiv. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.